My job is not to make you smarter. If you take this course or this training and you walk away and you have more information crammed into your brain, but your behavior didn't change, you failed and I failed. My job is not to make you smarter. It is to change your behavior in such a way that shows up on sales calls and gets you more performance. It just so happens that that whole process starts with me giving you information. Your job as a manager is to get leverage. It's to get things done through other people. And the best way to do that is to improve their skills so you can get more done through the people that you have in your purview. Hi, I'm Ted Blosser, CEO and co-founder of WorkRamp, where we're redefining the corporate learning space with the world's first all-in-one learning cloud for employee and customer learning. Welcome to the Learn Podcast, where we learn from the biggest leaders in SaaS and hear what makes them successful. Hope you enjoy the show. Hey, what's happening, everybody? Excited to have you all back today. We have a great guest, Chris Orlob, CEO at pclub.io and formerly of Gong. Thanks so much for joining us, Chris. Ted, what's the good word? You know, not much. It's a nice Thursday here as we're recording. Almost end of week here. Dog days of summer, but excited. And when I saw this on the calendar, I was excited to uh, chat with you. I was saying you're like a celebrity where I see your content everywhere, but never had a chance to actually meet you. So thanks for coming on. Yeah, I'm excited. Let's do it. Let's okay. Let's get kicked off. Love an elevator pitch on yourself, so the context, uh, so the audience cool. gets some context on you, and then we'll jump into some of the core uh, line of questioning here. Yeah. Uh, so right now, I run a business called PClub.io, which is an online course business uh, where we work with the top sales practitioners and B two B sales tech to create online courses, so you can steal the playbooks of some of the most successful sales practitioners in the world. I think probably the thing that I'm best known for is I spent a little under six years helping grow a company called Gong from less than $200,000 in annual revenue when I joined all the way um, well past $200 million by the time I left. Before that, I kind of mixed bag of being an entrepreneur again, being a sales leader, and eventually joined Gong in a product marketing capacity. And um, a bunch of years later, here I am. We'll talk about this uh, later. Hopefully we get time about the transition from product marketing into sales. But the thing I had to ask you is what was, what was the motivation going from Gong to starting your own thing where you're educating sales professionals? Like what, what was that? If you could give us a quick background on that move. That's going to be a long story because I think there's several pieces of context. Um, the first piece is the question, what motivated me to move from Gong to start my own company? is actually the backwards question, right? The right question is, I was an entrepreneur before Gone, and I eventually joined Gone. And so the right question, if like you you know me well, which you, you know, this is the first time we're reading, is why did you stay at Gone for so long when you weren't an entrepreneur there? And one of the reasons for that is I started a business called Conversature, which intended to be Gone, right? This was back in 2015. This was before Gone was on the scene. And after about 18 months of trying to run that company and struggling. And like, frankly, we failed. Gong came on the scene maybe a quarter or two before we closed up shop and I shut down the business and I desperately wanted to continue building the category of what at the time we referred to as conversation intelligence. So I joined Gong um, and after, you know, I stayed there for as long as I did, 
because it uh, it fulfilled a lot of the needs I had to be an entrepreneur, even though I wasn't, right? There was so much building to be done. We were creating a new category. I changed jobs several times there. So I was already, you know, I was always building something. Um, but there came a point, and I won't go into too much detail here, but this time last year, right? We're recording this uh, July 2023. Um, in June 2022, I took my old team to President's Club. Right. I wasn't managing that team anymore. I moved on to a different job. Um, Record breaking number of presidents. But they, club but they let you go. That's still yeah. great. <laughs> <laughs> and I, most beautiful place in the world, right? Punta Mita, Mexico, gorgeous ocean, 80 degree weather. You'd think I'd be about as relaxed as a person can be. But one of the nights I was there at midnight, I was rushed to the hospital, to a Mexican hospital. Wow. Thinking I was having a heart attack. Now, what turned out to be is after 20 hours of testing and me being in this hospital, and like, frankly, it's funny to say this, like, <laughs> it's and you're funny. so young and you're so young. I, That's crazy. I thought that was my last day on earth. I legitimately thought I was having a heart attack and I was going to die and that this was it. Turns out it was just an incredible panic attack. Wow. Okay. And so my boss, who at the time was Kelly Wright, right? She's president of Gone. Oh, yeah. We had her on uh, one of our conferences recently. Yeah, yeah. Amazing leader. And her and I had already been talking about a sabbatical. So this happens and she goes, go take six weeks off. Uh, so July of last year, I started taking six weeks off. And during that 45 day period, I had a severe panic attack, probably for 40 out of 45 of those days. To the point where I'm like starting to develop and thinking I was developing like panic disorder. Wow. A lot of people don't know that about me because like I'm pretty calm and collected, at least on the surface. But I thought I was dying, right? I thought something was wrong. My wife in Redwood City, you know, the Kaiser over there, right? Yep. I, I yep. was Been to there. The Kaiser a bunch of times because I thought I was having a stroke or something crazy like that. And what, what ended up happening is... I took a new job earlier that year as head of multi-product, thinking it was right for my career. And I spent six months or so doing that job, convincing myself to like it, and I hated it. Mm. And so I was like a boiling tea kettle that finally just exploded. And so there was this point, and I remember having this, and this is a little dramatic because honestly, I think it's funny that I thought I was gonna die that night. <laughs> like, it's so dumb to think about. But I remember being in Mexico and I was like, you know what? I've already been like thinking about co-founding another business. Uh, if this ends up to be being a fluke and I'm like not about to die, which I wasn't, uh, then, then I'm going to go be an entrepreneur. And so that ended up being the case. Uh, I took, uh, well, Amit, right, the CEO of Gong, he's a mentor of mine and still is to this day. Uh, we went to breakfast in San Francisco around this time uh, last year. And I told him I was leaving. He was one of the first people to know. And I made a couple declarations to him. I said, number one, Gong will be the last company I ever like work for as a W-2 employee. I'm going to be a serial entrepreneur from here on out. That's what I love doing. And then number two, I used to think I wanted to be a CRO, a chief revenue officer. I don't anymore. I want to hire and fire CROs. <laughs> <laughs> and so like I was mostly kidding, but I was like trying yeah. to make that one. So that's the long like kind of backstory um, that motivated me to go be an entrepreneur again. The, the reason I chose pclub.io, which is, you know, um, exactly what I explained it was like an online course platform for sales. 
is one of the things I became very well known for at Gong was giving really good sales trainings to people, mm. right? Like I would train my own team and then other teams would hear about it and they would ask me to go deliver the same uh, training. And to the point where my nickname became Professor Orlov, right? People started like referring <laughs> to me that way. And I've always had a passion. Frankly, I've always had a passion more so for learning than for teaching, but I also have a passion for teaching. And I figured that I can create a scalable company because I didn't want to be like an individual contributor sales trainer or anything like that, right? I wanted to create a big company because I want to make a big impact on the world. And so that's what led to P-Club. And we've been fortunate enough, thanks to our customers, to grow pretty fast so far. Wow. I did not expect such a great story, Chris. That is an amazing story. It's a wild ride. Um, but I love how you came to that conclusion and, and really stuck with your guns and said, hey, this is what I want to do. I mean, people, you're at such a great company. That must have been uh, a hard thing to leave, but your heart knew what it wanted and it was physically telling you what it wanted uh, and you decided on it, which is which is great. Well, that's why I want to have you on as a guest because you have this unique perspective of essentially um, the intersection of learning Professor Orlob and and really the sales profession. And if you think about the sales profession, most of us, and I used to be in sales at Box, almost had a similar background as yourself, um, where it, like you're kind of selling on the job, you're going after the next deal, you're not really taking the time to learn. So what I want to do is walk through three kind of, I call them kind of personas of sales um, uh, basically salespeople who have the opportunity to learn. So I'll talk through the rep and then the manager and then the enabler. But mm -hmm. let's start with the rep. Give us your viewpoint of what do you think the responsibility is today for reps to take learning in their own hands? I'll kind of start with a very open-ended question there and then we'll move into the management Later I mean, a hundred percent of the responsibility should be on the reps. Now that's not to give managers an enablement off the hook because it's more like a 300% pie, right? A hundred percent on the rep, a hundred percent and a hundred percent. The, the most successful reps I've ever met are obsessed with building their skills. They're obsessed with learning. Um, in fact, I often have friends that I grew up with in like college and my high school years, um, who, you know, compared to them, like, I, I hate to say it this way, but I've achieved significantly more in my career. And I've gone back home to Utah to like visit with some of them. And they asked me, they're like, you know, sometimes they call me lucky, which is always funny to me. But they asked me, like, how, how did you make this happen? And I said, well, uh, when I was about 21 years old, um, I started waking up at 6am every day. And I would read for 45 minutes before I got to work. And I did that every day. And when I was done with work and I got home, um, before I was like married and had kids and stuff, I would go on websites and take courses and learn stuff. And I repeated that every day for, you know, however long it was 12 years. And then I woke up to this life, right? So it's like this long, consistent journey of just compounding skills. There's no greater piece of advice I could give somebody aside from like having clear goals that you're shooting for to be successful in life, which is just to like overinvest in building your own skills, right? Like I, uh, if any rep came up to me, which I don't think, you know, they would admit this on the outside, but if they were like, oh, I'm not successful because my company's not investing in me, I'd probably tell them you're never going to be successful. 
<laughs> like, like you're not, it's not going to happen if you are letting somebody else hold your success hostage, right? Like now don't get me wrong. Like I said, managers and enablement should take responsibility for training people and P club wouldn't exist if that, if that weren't the case, but the best salespeople that I know don't let another person hold their success or their development hostage. They take learning into their own hands by reading great books, not just sales books, but books on business acumen and how to improve that. Or if reading's not their thing, they take or listen to podcasts or take some courses or, or do something to compound their skill set over a very long period of time. Have you, or do you have a story and you don't have to name names unless you have some of a rep who let's say was underperforming or was in a slump and they had this mindset shift you're describing of like, Hey, the way I could get out of this slump or the way I can improve true sales performance is actually through learning. Do you have any examples of that? And also maybe where they focus that time, like how do they approach Hey, do I, maybe I'm losing all my deals because I don't know about the product and I need to go spend 45 minutes a day on the product for, for a month. Right. So just, I'm throwing out an example like that, but do you have any great example for the people out there who are like, look, I want to learn to essentially, uh, uh, bust out of this slump. Any, any, any stories around that? I'll, I'll give you one. It, it actually wasn't a turning point. It was more just like time caught up with this guy in a very positive way. So I'm going to, I'm going to call him Matthew because I'm using income figures and I don't want to you know tell the world who it actually is. Uh, I think now he's probably about 30 years old, but he was the first person I had ever met who clocked in a $500,000 W2 while he was still in his twenties, right? He did that yeah. by age 28. Um, he started as an SDR at like a BI company, and then he moved on to another company, and then he moved to Gong um, as an SMBAE, and he rose through the ranks to an enterprise seller, and he's, he's still there, and he's just crushing it. And he was struggling for a while, right? Like his first year or so at Gong, he was struggling, but I also knew what his habits looked like, right? They looked very similar to the line, ones that I described about me earlier on. He was sucking up information. He was reading, he was spending a bunch of time honing his craft. And so there wasn't like this epiphany he had where he was like, oh, learning is how I turn this around. It was more just like the compound interest of learning eventually caught up with him. Right. While he was struggling, he was learning and he was still learning and he was still learning. And he went one day he woke up and he wasn't struggling again. And then one day he woke up again. And not only was he just not struggling, he was crushing it so much that like <laughs> people, some people almost didn't like it because they liked <laughs> what, what a like the struggling guy. <laughs> what a professor Orlob teach him. That's what everyone was asking. It reminds me of. Uh, there's this uh, movie clip um, or, or show clip, Halt and Catch Fire, where the during the interview, he goes, what, what are your credentials? And he showed him his uh, W-2, right? Uh, but you were going to say, you were going to say something. You're, you're going to close out that, that story. You know, I don't think I taught him that much. I think he probably taught me more than I taught him um, just because I've, he didn't report to me. Uh, I observed him a lot, right? Like he was on different teams and one of the things uh, he taught me is how much of personal productivity is dependent on your ability to manage your energy, not just your time, right? Like that was the first time I was exposed to that concept yep. uh, where he does manage his time well, 
but he also treats himself like a million dollar racehorse, right? He's not working himself into the ground and exhausting himself. And he's not filling his body with junk food. I'm sure occasionally he has like a couple slices of pizza or something like that, but he manages his energy in such a way to maximize life, right? Yeah, when he's work or when he's at work, he's working when he's not at work, he's absorbed in what he's doing. And he did that really well. So, you know, I don't think I, maybe I taught him something. Maybe he was observing me and he learned something, but I wouldn't know what that looks like. I probably learned more from him than he learned from me. It's a great story. Let's, let's transition out of the, the rep persona and let's move into, let's, let's take it as the frontline manager. I think there's an ongoing debate. And I've seen this myself. Some managers spend a lot of time in training with the kind of Andy Grove approach of, hey, learning and training is your highest uh, uh, leverage point with a larger team. But then I see other managers who crush it because they're a little bit of a stick approach. They manage through fear. Maybe not everyone loves working for them, but they just focus on the numbers and moving deals along and maybe put learning a little bit more to the to the side. So where do you sit in terms of what's the best balance for sales managers when it comes to learning and training for their reps? Well, I think it's a false dichotomy, right? Like, so first I would never encourage a sales manager to lead by fear, holding people accountable. Yes. But I think that's a different leadership style. I think you need to do both of those things, right? Like because you can't be a super coach and a trainer who doesn't hold people accountable, you will fail as a frontline manager. And you can't just hold people accountable and and not make people better because you are not doing, you are shirking the most fundamental part of your job, which is to extract performance out of talent, right? The talent being the person. And the number one way to do that is to improve their skills. So I would actually say, depending on how we're defining the word learning and training and coaching, that's job number one, probably right after good hiring. Actually, I would say that's probably even more important, but that's job number one of a manager. As long as we're defining learning, training, and coaching as building skills that show up in such a way that improves performance, right? So like I give a lot of trainings and I create courses and I work with other people to create courses. And one of the things I consistently say while I'm delivering those is my job is not to make you smarter. If you take this course or this training and you walk away and you have more information crammed into your brain, but your behavior didn't change, you failed and I failed. My job is not to make you smarter. It is to change your behavior in such a way that shows up on sales calls and gets you more performance. It just so happens that that whole process starts with giving me or me giving you information, right? This is like step one. And so to me that, I mean, what I wouldn't say is that's the only job of a frontline manager because it's not, they've got to hire people. They've got to fire people. They've got to hold people accountable, but your job as a manager is to get leverage. It's to get things done through other people. And the best way to do that is to improve their skills so you can get more done through the people that you have uh, in your purview. Hey everyone, we're in the middle of a conversation with Chris Orlob, CEO at pclub.io. We're talking a lot about learning in general and also the sales enablement profession. If you're looking for a sales enablement platform that also has a holistic 
learning capabilities of an LMS, look no further. You got to check out WorkRamp. WorkRamp is what building what we're calling the learning cloud. This helps you enable your employees, your customers, and your partners all on one seamless end-to-end platform. If you want to learn more, visit us at WorkRamp.com and get a demo today. I'm going to try an exercise on the fly here because I think this will help even solidify your last answer is when you think about a frontline manager, if in the exercise will be, I'd love to see how you would break up by percentage some of the core functions of a frontline manager. I just listed a few out. You could add others if I'm missing them on the fly here. If you think about hiring your team, that's one big one. Um, If you think, which includes like things like interviewing, obviously, if you then think about coaching, so using Gong, for example, or being on sales calls, coaching, spending that time training. Um, if you think about the actual deal management, like, okay, I'm on a deal or I'm going to help you close, like I'm in, in the front lines with you closing deals. And then maybe lastly is spending time managing up, like, hey, you're probably managing up to, to senior yeah. leadership. Like, how would you, those are just four, you could add, add or swap out others, but like, where do you think the percentages fall for like the best? Cause you were one of the best sales leaders at Gong. Like how did you even break it out? Or what was your philosophy on where you spend time? Yeah. I, uh, I thought about this a lot. I weird. I love deconstructing things into their component parts, just like you and I are doing right now. And I have like six different models at one point for sales management. And it like confused me, right? There was like too many of them. And so now I'm actually looking at mine. Um, To me, there are three super sections of being a frontline manager. There's manage the people, manage the selling, and manage the business. Mm. And so each one of those three, you can deconstruct into finer points. So underneath manage the people, you've got hiring and recruiting. You've got running effective one-on-ones. You've got coaching and development. You've got running team meetings. You've got motivating, and you've got performance management, right? That's the manage the people bucket. The manage the selling bucket You've got co-selling with your reps. You've got deal strategy and pipeline management. You've got building and managing the sales process. And you've got managing metrics and KPIs, which facilitate the selling. And then finally, you have this third master bucket, which is manage the business, which to me, the things that get nested under that are forecasting, managing sideways, managing up, um, and then kind of like your organization's operating rhythm what's the cadence of meetings and other rituals you do to facilitate you was much better framework than my crappy three or four part framework now (laughs) is it we didn't really have a fair playing ground there (laughs) so how would you break that up do you do you think about like third 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 or is it is it varying Uh, like does it depend on tenure yeah i mean the sales managers listening to this are going to hate to hear this um and i actually stole this joke from uh, what's his name? David Brock, who wrote a book on sales management. I can't remember what it's called, but I would say 50% of your time is spent on managing the people. Mm. 50% of your time is spent managing the selling and 50% of your time is spent <laughs> managing the business. I mean, frankly speaking, frontline management is not a 40 hour a week job. It's just yep. not. I mean, if you figured that out, either your company is probably like a lifestyle business or some part of that is being neglected or, you know, something I don't know, which could very well be true, but that was not my experience. Yeah. I wrote this LinkedIn post that literally the hardest job in a company is frontline management, right? Cause you're one of the few parts of the business that 
has so much work right in front of it where you're doing obviously the frontline management and you have to manage up. Think about even the CEO job. I'm pretty much managing down all day. I only have half yeah, that equation. Easy, right? CEO's easy. Right? <laughs> it's easy, easy job, right? Um, you, yeah, you know what I'm talking about. But um, yeah, maybe a little bit to the board, but frontline management is, is yeah. extremely difficult. I mean, so, everybody wants a piece of you. You got eight reps that want a piece of you. You got your peers, right? And marketing and CS, they want a piece of you, your boss, and even your boss's boss, probably it's a, uh, it is a thankless job, like bless the people who are in frontline management. Cause it, I totally agree with that. It's the hardest job. I mean, I haven't had all the jobs in a business. It's the hardest job I ever had in a business though. Okay. I want to move to the last persona and this will be the last major question. And we'll jump into the learn lightning round. Let's go into enablement. Give us, I, I'm assuming you've been around enablement, even when you were in product marketing, you probably interacted with enablement and you, I'm assuming also sell to enablers as well too, with P club and direct obviously to reps, give us your thoughts on the state of enablement, where it should go, what you think about, I don't know if you have any hot takes on this, um, but this would be really helpful for, for people to understand your perspective. To me, the job of sales enablement probably is one of the professions that has the biggest divide between like really great superstars and then just a sea of people who are, who need to up level their game, right? There's a lot of people, not people, cause it's not just them. There is a lot of enablement functions and businesses that are just not creating value for the business, but then you go into some and they're transforming the business. Like that one of the best enablement people I've ever met. I hope he listens to this. His name's Kyle Bastion. And he's the, I don't even know if his job's VP of enablement anymore, but he works for Drift. And he has worked for Drift for like six or seven years. And I think one of the reasons he's so good is it, or good at enablement is he has credibility like I've never seen before with his sales team, which a lot of enablement people lack, right? So I actually spoke at their kickoff in Las Vegas Um, this year back in February, and I got to observe how he interacted with his sales team, right? We went to dinner a bunch of times. Um, We had like the event and his salespeople, I went went to a bar with a couple of his salespeople and they're like, yeah, we just need to get back to the point where Kyle is coaching reps individually. You don't hear reps speak about most heads of enablement that way. And so... This one's a tough one to crack the code on because I think there's probably a a couple different profiles of what makes somebody good at enablement. Sometimes you're the sage, right? Kyle is the sage. He is the one with the credibility. He is able to teach. He's able to train his team to teach. He has credibility. Some enablement people are facilitators and there's nothing wrong with that, but there needs to be a healthy respect and self-awareness if you're in a situation where your sales team doesn't see you as credible and won't. And if that's the case, you shouldn't be teaching. You should be the facilitator of finding other experts and putting them in front of your salespeople to learn, right? You are now the curator and the project manager. There's probably a third profile, right? This is the first time I've really thought well, about it. Well, let me actually ask you about that first profile. It actually is, you know, coincidentally, I wrote a post about this this morning, but what do you think if you say, Hey, I want to be that first profile. I want to be the credible person. Sales reps are like, I want them to come help me more. 
is there an activity that that enablement professional can do to build that credibility, would you say? You better be obsessed with learning sales, right? Like not only should you have a track record where you were once successful in a credible way, but like if that's who you want to be, you better be ahead of the game, right? You better be sucking up all the information you can because that's now who you are. That's your professional identity. And so being the person who consumes knowledge at a rate that is just an order of magnitude higher than anybody else in the business, that's probably what it demands of you. That's cool. If you think about that, even your second profile, I don't know if you had the third, I'll let you think of it if while I'm talking, <laughs> but like that second profile is like, look, a sales team could probably care less if you became a master of program management. Yeah. <laughs> and they're like, I yeah. probably don't care, but uh, yes, it'd be great if you could be a facilitator, manage programs well, but they do care if you're very credible and understand the art of sales even more because a, a sales rep doesn't have as much time to go learn the art. They're kind of learning on the fly. I don't know yeah. if you had that third, if you had that third no, or, I think, I think or those first two actually are pretty wide encompassing. <laughs> yeah. I think the second one, I'm just like starting to come to some realizations as we talk where like, if you are the program manager kind and you're, you want to be an enablement, you can still create value for the business, right? Cause like maybe you can't deliver the knowledge with your own hands or with your own voice, but you can get really good at diagnosing microscopic skill issues throughout the organization and then bringing in a solution to address that, that you just created value for the organization. But if all you do is play calendar Tetris with the sales team and get something on the calendar and you know, put a few tasks in a sauna or something like that. A virtual assistant can do that. Yeah. So, you know, there's, there's more than one way to create value for your business. If you're in an enablement function. I like that. And if you think about that second persona type, a business might have different needs, right? A business might have enough of the first type and they need program management. Also, I've seen different founders depending on, Hey, if you're early stage and there's a lot of stuff to do, I'm okay with program management. Or if I'm early stage and I got a little bit of a product market fit issue, you might want that uh, mm -hmm. first type of persona. So love the way you broke that down. Well, or if hey, the business, yeah, I go was ahead. gonna say, or if the business is getting very large and difficult to manage and you've got multiple programs going on at once, that's another opportunity for that. Totally, totally. Well, Chris, we're coming close to the end of our time. We walked through three key personas, your perspective around learning on each. What I want to do is close us off with our section called the learn rapid fire round. I'm going to ask you just a few questions. Give me some one, two line answers for each of these, but I'm very curious for you. What is one podcast book blog that's top of mind for you right now? I would name a newsletter. Uh, it's called ultra successful by Julie Gertner. Uh, she's a PhD. She's a performance coach for anonymous people who have net worths of a minimum of $50 million. So like big time entrepreneurs, big time executives and her newsletter, it's a paid newsletter. It's like nine bucks a month, best nine bucks a month I spend. She writes what she learns about these people in her coaching sessions. And it's almost like the anti self-help newsletter because she's talking about like, Hey, if you do want to be ultra successful, which if you don't, it's fine, blah, 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 I'll make that caveat. <laughs> but if you do, here's what it actually takes. And this is what 
these people are like. And she's very real about it. She's not talking about, you know, the the feel-good stuff that you would read in like your typical mainstream self-help book. She talks about how they are very tenacious and how it demands a lot from them and how they sharpen the axe and are constantly learning. She so it's a very real look into if you measure success with finances, which there's more noble ways to do it, it's a very noble look into financially successful uh, people. Sorry, not noble look, a very uh, real look, authentic look into That's it. That's awesome. Yeah. It's like Tony, Tony Robbins, what was he charged? A million, million per client once, <laughs> once a month? type of session, but that sounds like it's called ultra successful. Is that right? Ultra successful. Okay. Yeah. So we'll put it, those, we'll, it is, uh, I don't read it as much as I used to, but it has been responsible for several months of inspiration for me, uh, just with one of her pieces. That's cool. Yeah. All right. Next question. If you could learn from one person could be alive or dead, who would you want to learn from? Richard Branson. He is like, uh, you know, when, when I first became an entrepreneur, I knew about Richard Branson. I didn't really think of anything of him, but now I've start that I've started to like learn more about myself as an entre- entrepreneur. He's kind of like the ultimate person because his job, he is never managing the businesses. He's just constantly starting new businesses. And I personally love that. I love to create. I love the concept of creating like a mini conglomerate where you have like an ecosystem of businesses where when one becomes successful, the other becomes more successful. And he is the best person in the world at crafting, you know, an empire like that. And he's also just kind of a fascinating, um, outrageous personality. I think he'd be really fun to talk to. You know, I just listened, finally listened to podcast on a, uh, with Mr. Beast and you sound a lot like him from a motivation standpoint and him building, I think he has five, five different brands and business lines now, but you're, you're the Mr. Beast of, uh, sales <laughs> content. Uh, all right. Last question I'll ask you who, and this is going to be a nice shout out. Who's the best seller you would want to give a shout out to, or that you've, you've learned from personally. Jamison Young. Jamison Young who's is Jamison the, Young. He is the SVP of sales at Gong. Um, we hired him as the VP of sales, uh, this time in 2017. So he was like the first sales leader at Gong. I was still doing product marketing. And I learned more about how to sell successfully from him than probably anybody. And, and that's saying something because there were a lot of people at Gong that I learned from, but he's, he's incredible. That's a great so, shout out. Hopefully he, it doesn't sound like he's Matthew from uh, earlier. So no, no, uh, maybe even better, maybe even better. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for spending time with us. This was an awesome recording and uh, best of luck on P club. We'll be able to promote that here as well too, but appreciate you jumping on. Thanks, Ted. All right.